Hey listeners, a quick note that this episode is heavy, obviously, and discretion is advised. Nobody's committing suicide when they're happy and everything's going well. Maybe that's not true, I shouldn't say nobody, but that's typically not what happens to people. Usually everything is crumbling down around them in reality or maybe not, right? Maybe they just feel like everything's crumbling down around them and they have no options and they feel like they're hopeless and helpless and it's such a deep, dark place. People really don't understand why a suicide experience in your life is very different than losing someone in another way. I remember laying down on the bench just feeling absolute despair. I wanted to really end it all. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today we're talking about suicide, especially as it impacts families and the Catholic community. I feel compelled at this moment to remind you that this podcast is an extremely small operation, namely me. And so even though I cannot restrain myself from doing episodes on big topics like this, I also can't say all the things that ought to be said about Catholics and suicide. Okay? So please take this episode as a tiny point of reflection on a huge topic. Here's Chris Miller. Hi, um, my name is Chris Miller. I am currently a doctoral student at the University of San Francisco. Uh, I'm also co-chair of the Council on Mental Illness, which is sponsored by the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. Chris and I got connected through his work with the NCPD in my earlier podcast on mental health. He courageously agreed to share some of his story with y'all. The time is 2013. Chris had been teaching middle school and working as a youth minister and a camp counselor. He loved his Catholic faith and sharing it with young people, and he loved creating community. He realized that working at a boarding school might be a way to combine all of these loves. In the spring of 2013, I interviewed uh, all over the country. I looked back, I think I had something like 25 different phone or Skype interviews. One of them was this boarding school in Connecticut that I had never heard of before. He was impressed by the school and accepted the job. But as he packed up his life in Northern California, he was nervous. As I was preparing to move, I started feeling anxious. And I, I first attributed it to just the natural feelings of change of, uh, of environment or, or life changes. And it's natural to feel anxious when you're moving across the country to a new environment where you don't know anyone. And when Chris got to Connecticut, there were some good things. It's really pretty there in the fall. Very, very beautiful with all the fall colors. And, uh, you know, I had never experienced that before. That was a positive aspect. The challenging aspect was the cold. Starting in mid to late October, it really started getting cold and dreary. And the students were great, but some of them were processing a trauma that happened nearby. The boarding school I was working at was 20 minutes from Newtown, Connecticut, and the uh, shooting at Sandy Hook was just eight or nine months prior. I actually had some students who went to Sandy Hook Elementary, of course, you know, they were much older uh, when I met them, but they were still very much processing you know, the tragedy that happened there. It didn't take too long before Chris knew that he had a problem. Uh, it was right around Labor Day that I noticed or realized there was something deeper. And you know what? 
He did all the things that you should do in this situation. See a therapist. Go to a psychiatrist to get medication. Reach out to people. Stay in touch with your family. In the mornings, uh, I would wake up and there would be times where I would just be sobbing uh, about how um, uncomfortable or really sad I was at the school. I, you know, I enjoyed the school. I enjoyed the work. I remember calling my mom several times. You know, mind you, the three-hour time difference. She was probably 5:30 or 6 in the morning in California time, uh, and just sobbing and saying, "I'm, I'm not happy here." I realized that I was in the middle of, of depression. Chris's mom is actually a therapist herself, so she was very supportive and encouraging. I hope you're getting the right picture here: a young Catholic man, faithful and intelligent, doing everything right in terms of how to respond to depression. He drove to Boston College to defend a paper for his academic program, and he did it. It was successful. After I, I left, there was a wooded area at the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College, and I ended up going into that wooded area, and there was a, a bench. And I remember laying down on the bench just feeling absolute uh, despair. Uh, I wanted to really end it all. Um, you know, and I had just successfully completed, defended my project, but I was not in a good place. I know I'm harping on this a bit, but it's important. Externally, things were good. Chris had a good job that was meaningful. He believed in God and God's love. His family loved him. His project had just passed. And still. So I was just full of despair and remember sitting there thinking to myself, I just want this to end. I, I, I want to melt away into the forest and just die. I'm not saying Chris didn't have problems. Of course he did. But when things are pretty okay and you feel like Chris did, we call that a mental illness. The next morning, I was in such complete despair that I uh, met with the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, you know, I need to refer you to the hospital. And so... He drove me to the Danbury, Connecticut hospital. I was put into the psychiatric unit and spent um, about four or five hours there, did an evaluation, and ultimately was released for passive suicidal thoughts. Passive suicidal ideation. Chris didn't have a plan to kill himself. He didn't have it worked out. But his psychiatrist still thought he could be a danger to himself. When the psychiatrist said, you need to go to the hospital. Part of me felt relieved in the sense that, you know, maybe this would be an impetus for me to get all better. I think that sometimes there's a danger of us thinking, and I remember thinking this, that I want them to just prescribe me a pill, medication that is going to solve all the problems and make everything be all okay again. And unfortunately, it doesn't, life doesn't work that way. Medication doesn't work that way, especially with antidepressants. It takes time for them to to work and to to kick in. That wasn't Chris's only emotion, though. He was scared, too. Uh, You had to go through the ER department to get to the psychiatric unit. And I remember very clearly seeing a kid whose basically arm was half chopped off, another person who was under a towel or a a cloth, and I assumed that person was deceased. Uh, It was just a very scary environment. created a little bit more trauma. By the way, Chris later told the hospital what a bad system that is, 
and he thinks they changed it. He talked to his parents from the hospital. They took away his phone in the ward, but family could still call the room. Chris's mom was in South America at the time. I, I remember feeling so disappointed that I was disrupting her vacation. Me calling from the hospital was ruining her vacation. That was one of my preliminary thoughts, is that I don't, I don't want to bug her. That's right, y'all. Chris wanted to die, but he felt guilty about putting a damper on his mom's vacation. This is an important detail. People experiencing suicide ideation are not selfish people. They are sick people. I was released, and the vice principal uh, at the school ended up picking me up at the hospital, drove me back to the boarding school, took the next day off, met with the headmaster, and was told it would be good to take a two-week break from the school. He spent two weeks at his aunt's house and realized that he couldn't go back to the school. He resigned and headed home. As he reflected on his experience, Chris remembered an earlier time in 2009 when there was a cluster of teen suicides in his local area. I could understand in my head cognitively what would compel somebody to jump in front of a train. The vast majority of the suicides in Palo Alto in 2009 were related to death by um, jumping in front of a train. And it wasn't until 2013, you know, when I had my own experience of suicidal thoughts, that I could truly understand the grasp that depression could have. And the whole time that Chris was wrestling with his own health, he was prepping lessons for sophomores on why human beings have faith. And I remember preparing lessons, thinking to myself, boy, (laughs) I'm having a struggle, you know, and again, I was in the middle of depression, but trying to really understand, you know, why God allows suffering. I remember through the preparation of the material as part of my duties as a teacher, praying a lot and, and really reflecting on my own spiritual life and how Jesus was present through, you know, my own experience. And, and I, I will say it was difficult. It was difficult. There were times where I felt that I was abandoned, thinking of Jesus' last words on the cross. But, Chris says, God was there. In retrospect, on the road to recovery, road to healing, I recognize, still recognize that Jesus is there. God is present in, in all things. But it was very difficult in the middle of it. And he didn't say this, but I think it's possible for God to allow this kind of suffering in order to allow those who get through it to help others. One of the projects that I'm working on right now is working with two members of the California legislature to mandate mental health curriculum in California public schools. And Chris isn't the only Catholic out there using his own experience to help others. Okay. I'm Sister Colleen Ann Nagel. I'm a Franciscan Sister of the Eucharist, and I'm director at the Franciscan Life Process Center in Lowell, Michigan. I'm also a Catholic counselor. I direct a counseling program here at our center, and we have seven therapists who work with us. I contacted Sister Colleen Ann because I saw on social media that the retreat center she works at was having a retreat for people touched by suicide. I did not expect her to say what she said next. Well, um, 25 years ago, my father committed suicide. 
that wasn't what prompted the retreat. It was another case of attempted suicide, about six years ago. A friend of the community, a young man, attempted suicide and became disabled, while two of his friends died by suicide. His mother and father have always said to me, you know, if ever you would be willing to give a retreat for people who survived suicide, we would be very grateful. And so about three years ago, we decided to try it, not knowing if we would get a response from the general public or not. And um, every year since, we've done that. And on an average, we get anywhere from 15 to 10 to 7 to 8 people, depending on the year. Sister Colleen Ann knows that people need to be ready before going on a retreat like this. She considers it a privilege to minister to families in this situation. And, you know, you learn as you go about what to say, what not to say, what might have relevance for the people sitting with you and what doesn't. And that's, I mean, it's a gift to learn those things. Sister works with a priest in the diocese who also has a master's in social work. Father presents the church's stand on suicide, and I present the therapeutic pieces of suicide. And then we also work with the people who are in attendance in terms of what was their experience and what did they do, what, was, what were the circumstances around what happened for them, as much as they want to share and um, try to help them integrate. She is grateful for how much support is available today. 25 years ago, there was nothing like this. But I have the unbelievable gift of belonging to a religious community who believes in counseling. Obviously, when I went through that experience of my father taking his life, I was offered the opportunity to obtain some counseling that assisted me very, very much. Losing a loved one by suicide is not the same as other kinds of loss. First of all, it's a shock. But then there's recrimination. So within families, we have, I should have, I would have, I could have, what's wrong with me, if only I had. And you have a lot of people who, in their trauma, immediately either take on the total responsibility for the person's suicide or you have people who blame one another immediately. You said this and you made them mad or you did that. And in those moments, they don't really mean what they're saying. They're just desperate. So in families, we have anything from self-recrimination to accusations to feelings of total helplessness to feelings of unbelief, taking on very irrational ideas and feelings of guilt and responsibility that cripple people. Sister Colleen Ann has seen how some people shut down in the face of this trauma while others need to talk. But one of the worst things is... We have people who carry around terrible fear that their loved one has gone to hell or has suffered and is not being able to be redeemed, and they stop going to church because of that. 
or they stop believing in God for a time being, and then they don't know what to do with their anger at God because they don't feel like it's right to talk about it. So you can hear how crippling a suicide experience is from family members and how they suffer. And they suffer for a long, long time before they're even able to reach out and ask somebody to hear them. Let me read to you directly from the catechism here. I won't read every word, but it's paragraphs 2280 to 2283. Quote, We are stewards, not owners, of the life God has entrusted to us. It is not ours to dispose of. Suicide contradicts the natural inclination of the human being to preserve and perpetuate his life. Grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. We should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. End quote. The church has taken a very merciful stance. This is a relatively modern approach. When I was a child, I was a child in the 1950s, and suicide was still looked upon as such a grave sin People could not have a funeral in the church, could not be buried in blessed ground, and so forth. So suicide in my childhood in the 50s was still a very fearsome experience, which it always is, but it was very dark, and people never talked about it, and if they did, it was always hush-hush. And I had family members who did commit suicide and who did have mental illness, and for different times were put in mental institutions, received horrible electric shock treatments. It was always considered shameful. Only in very private little whispering places did you ever speak about. But it was something to be feared. It was something to not understand, but just to be afraid of and stay away from. And it was considered evil. Sister Colleen Ann credits St. John Paul II for the development of the Church's teaching on suicide, perhaps because of his deep reflection on the acting person. Therapist Tommy Tai shared a few thoughts about that as well. Something that comes up in our Catholic faith a lot is the question about suicidality and when somebody actually commits suicide, what does that mean for their soul? And I think that's something that we all struggle with when we know somebody or we've lost somebody who's gone through that, who's kind of suffered that really dark, dark place. The church teaches that taking your own life is a mortal sin, right? Because thou shalt not kill, so that's pretty black and white, and that makes sense. And then people feel really terrible about it and feel like that's it for them, and they can't come back. And we don't kind of get to the like smaller level and finesse what we're talking about and kind of explore what it means to commit a mortal sin and be responsible for it. Full knowledge and full consent. You know, to be culpable for a mortal sin, we have to have, you know, knowledge, it has to be grave matter, and we have to have free consent of our will. And I, I have a hard time thinking, and I won't say that, I won't, I won't like put an absolute on it. From what I know of people who have committed suicide, I have a very hard time thinking that many of them had free consent of their will. And so I think that we need to remind people of that, and we need to fall back on what mental illness is and what it does to people. Why are we stuck on feeling that it's, not an illness, right? Why are we still stuck there? And I think the topic of suicide gives us a chance to go there to say when people are in such a bad place, they feel like making a decision that they wouldn't make if they were in that place. And for me, that shows that they don't have full consent of the will. Tommy hopes that parish priests, teachers, and the like 
will help families to focus on Jesus' mercy. And the hope that we have that people will still find salvation through Jesus and his mercy when they're faced with such a terrible choice and they choose that painful, that painful choice, we really need to like cast it on the mercy of the Lord that he was with them. He knows their heart. I think we need to talk about that a little bit more when it comes to suicide. And while we're thinking about how to prevent suicide and support people who are struggling, Sister Colleen Ann reminds us that it does not have to be elaborate. Part of it is how much, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, let's just say everybody, sh- whoever comes to Mass on a weekend, Saturday night or a Sunday, how much do we ever come in and greet people and look around and see who's there? How much do we let ourselves even notice? That's number one. Try to become a regular at church without getting obsessive about it. Sit in the same spot and notice the people around you. Number two is, if you did notice something that got your attention, would you ever go to the pastor and say something to him? Or the priest who celebrates Mass if he's not the pastor? Or would you ever care enough to call the parish office and say, you know, every Sunday I sit about three pews away from Mr. So-and-so, if you know their name, and there's just something not right. Would anybody at the parish be able to make a friendly visit? You know, sometimes it's more that than even offering something. I'm totally guilty of saying to myself, hmm, I haven't seen that cute old guy in a while. Hope he's okay. And then going on with my day. But I do think our parishes could be much more proactive. Educating on what the church teaches about suicide can really help. And parishes could keep a list of professionals to refer people to when they experience trauma. You know, Sarah, I guess I would just say to you that I just think we have a long way to go to educate one another about what people experience in their daily lives that are traumatic and that cause a whole grief process. And it's not just death. It's not just suicide. There are so many things in our world today that cause us to be traumatized that cause us to suffer grief. And I just think if we can be more aware and assist one another to seek the help we need um, and not postpone that. Okay, remember what I said about this just being a beginning. Thank you so much to Chris, Sister Colleen Ann, and Tommy. Let's take care of each other, y'all. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.